Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, just one thing before we get into the episode, and that is a word about our podcast sponsor this week, and that is Primadine, made by Oxford Healthspan, which is the brainchild of my good friend, Leslie Kenny. Primadine is an incredible source of spermidine. Spermidine is one of the most incredible supplements that I have come across in a long time. It addresses six of the nine hallmarks of aging. And this particular spermidine product is incredible for a bunch of different reasons. One, it's super clean. There's nothing but spermidine and prebiotics that will support your body's own production of spermidine in the capsule. It is a high quality wheat germ extract. And what they've done to make sure that it doesn't go rancid and go bad is they've defatted it. They've removed all the fat, all those delicate omega-6 oils that can be good for you in certain contexts, but once they go rancid and they go rancid very quickly, it's anything but good for you. So Primadine addresses six of the nine hallmarks of aging folks. Everything from the proper folding of proteins to autophagy, to cellular communication, the proper um, DNA protection. Uh, uh, did I say autophagy? Anyway, six different hallmarks. Um, if you follow me on Instagram, you can go look for a couple of posts I've written about spermidine and you will see why this is a supplement that I include in my stack every single day. And frankly, it is part of the foundation stack for every one of my clients. So if you decide you want to give Primadine a try for yourself, you're going to want to go to primadine.com and use promo code BIONAT1515 and you will get 15% off your supplement. And the last thing I'm going to leave you with is that not only is Primadine doing all this incredible work under the hood to keep you healthy and rejuvenate your body and keep you youthful and vital. But on top of that, you're going to see it on the inside because you're going to grow stronger nails, better skin, and thicker, better hair. It is actually quite the most amazing thing. I've never really, I haven't seen too many supplements where I've gotten so much positive feedback from my clients and from my group followers. So by all means, if you haven't given this stuff a try yet, you must, uh, but you will know that it will take a good month or two before you start to see the effects and the benefits. So if you get if, if this resonates for you, give it a shot. You won't be sorry. And now enjoy the episode. Hey folks, just a little bit of housekeeping before we launch into the episode. Please remember that all of the information provided in these podcasts is for information purposes only. We are never offering treatments, cures, whatever for any kind of disease or medical condition. Anything you hear about here is going to be intriguing. There's some research around it, but make sure that you check with your medical provider before you go off and do any of this stuff for yourself. All right. So enjoy the episode. And also if you're looking to connect with me for any reason, with your comments, questions, whatever it may be, you can reach me through my website, which is 
natnidham.com, or you can find me on Facebook in the Optimizing Superhuman Performance Group, or on MeWe in the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Group. And of course, you can also follow me on Instagram, which is at Natalie Nidham. Natalie is with an H between the T and the A, the second A. So thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you guys. Enjoy the episode. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Matt Dawson. Um, it's exciting to be here with you today. Um, I am here today, guys, with, as I just said, Dr. Matt Dawson, who is the founder and CEO of Wild Health. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So thank you so much for agreeing to be here and welcome to the show. Yeah, as am I. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Uh, lucky for us, uh, Matt remembered his mic, which reminded me that I didn't have my mic. So, <laughs> so you guys are going to get to the pleasure of hearing both of us speak today. So um, I've been aware of Wild Health now for a few years, ever since I first heard you, uh, you and your business partner, Mike, Ma Dr. Mike Mallon, speak on another podcast, the big, great, amazing Ben Greenfield podcast. And um, I've always loved your approach to, to health. I mean, it, it's always really spoken to where my beliefs are as well. And, um, you know, I've always kind of had an eye, like when I heard that you guys were having a summit, which we'll talk about in a little while. But, you know, for those listeners who are relatively new to you and your approach, why don't we start there? Why don't we start with, well, actually, before we get to your approach, why don't we kind of start about how you started all this? Because, you know, this is more than a medical practice. You've got a very different approach to health, I think, than most, comp most companies, most doctors and practices. So why don't we start there? Sure. And, and it wasn't always that way. Uh, Mike and I were in the traditional medical system before. We were um, physicians in our, our prior job, we were teaching a lot of other physicians. So we were teaching kind of a technological skill that not a lot of doctors had. We were traveling a lot. We were kind of international, like a couple of times a month, really moving around, working in the university system, but within the system. Um, and while we were doing that, we started to see a lot of evidence coming out around genomics and precision medicine, personalized medicine. And we had all heard those buzzwords for over a decade, um, but we started to see a lot of evidence come out that maybe you really could do something with this. And as it was coming out, as we were seeing that, Mike also went kind of through um, a health uh, scare, an issue. Um, I still remember where I was. I was teaching a course in San Francisco and I got a text from him and um, it was lipid numbers and they were just through the roof and they weren't like a little elevated, like people overreact to, but they're really dangerous levels. And um, we were surprised because we were both doing ultra marathons, like living very healthy and it just didn't make sense. So he went to see his doctor. Um, they put him on a diet that works for most people, but he got worse. Um, his doctor also wanted to put him on a statin. We were a little worried about that just from the risks of muscle breakdown, myopathy. And sure enough, he got those. He didn't tolerate it at all. Yeah. And as yeah. he's going through this, we each sequenced our own DNA because we, we saw, I mean, you can do that. You could run through your raw data through all these different programs, really dig in. And we started digging in. We saw pretty quickly that he needed to be on the opposite diet of what he'd been put on. And we also saw that he had a specific single nucleotide polymorphism that made him almost guaranteed to get muscle breakdown and myopathy from a statin. From statins. That's so interesting. So what was the diet he was put on and what was the diet in the end that 
Mm-hmm. You know, what What was that? Do you get put like on a super low fat kind of diet? Yeah. So good question. So actually, initially he tried a ketogenic diet okay. um, and I had had really good success with that. Uh, my mm-hmm. numbers look great. And if you look at the meta-analyses, most people do better uh, with that diet when they get off kind of the standard American diet and do that. Um, however, he didn't, he got a lot worse. Um, and, and with the kind of the myopathy issue, which was really the bigger issue and him having this snip that it, like, it's clearly he shouldn't have been on that. And it kind of angered us. We're like, why did his physician not, not know this? And when they realized, well, no one is doing it. Yeah. Nobody's looking at that stuff. Yeah. 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 And in the, the diet, it's an interesting thing about, um, the diet too. We, we, we noticed when we said, we looked at both of our DNA, we had really different DNA when it came to a lot of these like saturated fat markers, like people are alpha, people are gamma, these FTOs. I had yeah. almost none. He had all of these. And then it made sense why I was tolerating and eating a very animal-based diet. And he needed to be on an extremely plant-based diet with very little saturated fat in order for us to kind of perform good, have our markers good and really, really feel good. And that that's what sent us down the rabbit hole and really digging in just our, our personal experience there. And we pretty quickly saw that, okay, there is a ton of evidence here. There's a massive difference in what the science says and what we're practicing right now. And that made us start treating our friends and family and then other physicians who trusted us. Uh, and the results we got with them just led us to saying, Hey, we're going to leave traditional medicine and we're going to do this. No one is doing it. It needs to be done. Um, and that's how we, we got into this several years ago. That's amazing. I, I love that. You know, I think that I've always been a huge proponent of personalized diets and I got into epigenetic tests or genetic test, genomic testing myself a few years ago. And, um, it is always amazing to me that even, you know, there's the PPARG, that's the genetic privilege around saturated fat di- uh, gene, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, of course, have the version where too much saturated fat just, it's like lights me up on fire, right? It's mm-hmm. going to drive inflammation in my body, yeah. the whole nine yards. Um, but, um, and then you get these people who literally need to consume carb in order to burn fat. And it, it makes for such a... It brings so much nuance to helping people to understand what diet and really helps people to step away from the whole rhetoric of, I think, the narrative that's going on right now, which we were just talking about before the podcast, which is, I almost feel like diet is becoming a political issue between these very extreme forms of diet between one camp that's vegan and you know, for any number of whether it's philosophical or whatever reasons is, and even for the planet adamant that, you know, veganism is the path forward versus another camp, which is at the other extreme, which is the carnivore crowd um, who believe the dead opposite. And so, you know, to be able to look at someone's individual situation and help them to choose what's going to work for their body and acknowledge that everybody's not the same, I think is such a powerful line. Do you, um, so do you ever find though, when you're doing, when you're working with someone on genomics, like, are there limitations to what you can really pull out of genomics? Like, do you ever see people who on paper should be doing one thing and yet in practice, it seems to kind of not pan out? Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. And so, um, we can do a lot, like we know a lot right now, 
compared to what we knew five years ago. What we will know in five years from now, we know very little. So it's important to kind of have that humility around it um, because uh, like right now, if, if someone comes to us, we take a very holistic approach. So we sequence their DNA. But that DNA, that's that's kind of your operating system. That's only about 20% of your health outcome. Like the yeah. epigenetics and how you express it, what you eat, what you're exposed to, your stress levels, those turn on and off all these good and bad genes. So we also do a deep dive in your blood work, like mm-hmm. your microbiome, do a lot of questionnaires. So in taking that really holistic approach, we can make more precision recommendations. We can give better advice, but they're precision recommendations. They're not perfect recommendations. Like yeah. We still need to have humility around. It. And there's so much we don't know about the human body that when we make a precision recommendation, we need to identify an objective marker of success. How are we going to measure if this is working or not? And then we need to revisit it. So although we may be more precise, we're still not perfect. And it's really important to have that humility and to have the relationship with the patient, to the ongoing relationship where over time is when you really optimize someone. Yeah, I love that. And then you just mentioned something that I was writing before, right before you said it, and that is the microbiome. Like, do you find, like, to me, I feel like the microbiome is a, the wild card. And mm-hmm. it's just like genomics, as we know way more than we did five years ago. And I think actually on, on the side of the microbiome, we probably know less um, yeah. even than genomics. It's, it's again, like so many companies out there now are, you know, come to us, we're going to map your microbiome. We're going to tell you what to eat and how to eat and the whole nine yards. And I'm like, really? Cause I'm not so sh-. I mean, it's a starting point, but again, I think we're still in a world, as you're saying, we're in a fluid matrix where we're still helping people to self-experiment and find that path to what's really working for them. What are you finding is your best source of information on microbiome health and how it's going to interact with those genomics to maybe shift people one way or another? Sure. So what we know about the microbiome is that it's extremely important. Um, (laughs) However, we know almost nothing about what to do about it and and how to affect it. And it's like the, it's like the depths of the ocean. We know there's really incredible stuff there. We just don't know what's incredible yet or what to do. Like we have all these associations, but no real clear causations, no real clear um, thing to do. So, um, so it's difficult. Like I think we do frequently look at the microbiome. If someone has really poor diversity or a lot of inflammation, it can lead us down certain paths to try to, to try to make interventions. Um, but I think a lot of the companies that are making very specific claims, like you mentioned of telling you what to eat and stuff, I think they're out over their skis on that. I don't think they're, they're really supported by a lot of evidence and we continue to watch the space and we, we do have it built into our algorithms. There are some things that, that we can do, but what I find is that, um, we do the genomic testing and the blood work. We always find multiple targets and multiple things to help people optimize. With the microbiome, we frequently do, but not always. And so yeah. it's, it's an emerging field that I'm excited about, but it's definitely early and, and you, you got to be careful with the claims around the microbiome. Yeah. It's funny, you know, because I recently, you know, having a podcast now I'm in this world where people will send me stuff to try. Hey, Nat, I've got this really amazing stuff. You need to try this. And I'm like, okay, I'm in, you know, I mean, that's my job. I'm here to try different things. And, um, 
I got sent a product and it was, it's all, you know, it's this prebiotic, it's kind of a fermented product and, you know, just drink a little bit of this every morning. It's going to reset your microbiome. It's going to be amazing for your digestion. And I did it for three. I started three days. I used this product for three days, first thing in the morning. And honestly, it was amazing. I felt great. I was like, you know, going to the bathroom, like clockwork, everything was awesome. Day four rolls along. And if I had been like the, the last, it was like, I was three months pregnant, like literally it, it not to mention how painful it was. And, and I'm sitting there, you know, you're sitting there trying to figure out, did I eat a bad egg? Did I eat sushi last night? Is it possible that something I ate wasn't cooked properly? Like what could, and you finally realize, and I think the conclusion I came to after a couple of days, because then the next day I took a half dose and felt a little bit better, but I, I, you know, I was still embarrassingly bloated. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, it, it's, it's coming to this one size fits all thing. And what's probably happening for me is I, there's a lot of foods I've kind of knocked out over the last few months for any number of reasons. And a lot of those foods are fermented and present in this product. And that doesn't make the product bad. But it means that me dumping a bunch, like this very concentrated source of these factors, whatever they are, into my gut all at once caused mayhem. I mean, I think that what happened was there were guts, you know, there are bugs that maybe have been starved out, others that have come up, and it just turned into a gong show. <laughs> wow. so, um, but, you know, what it did show me, though, what was interesting is I don't think I've ever really experienced that even from a probiotic pill, like something that dramatic. And what I think was interesting for me about this was how powerful a food product can actually be in, in getting into and impacting that microbiome. Have you yeah. found that? Like, do you, do you use a lot of probiotics in your practice? Cause probiotics, again, like it's very hit and miss, right? It's almost like, mm -hmm cultivating a monoculture in a world that is supposed to be so diverse. Yeah, we do sometimes not a whole lot though, just because again, the evidence is not great for them. It's mixed. And so in general, again, our kind of decision-making one, like a point you made about like affected you in a positive way, then a negative way, everyone is different. Everyone's going to respond differently. So the way we approach any kind of decision-making like that is okay. What is the evidence for it first off? Um, but then we know that everyone is going to respond differently. So is it going to be harmful? Probably not. Okay. Then what is the evidence for it being helpful? Okay. And then what is your DNA blood work symptoms, mm -hmm. everything else, then we can make a decision. But what we also like to do is be very data driven about it. So if you, if you exact, for example, if we were talking about you, potentially trying this, I'd first maybe think deeply about what objective marker could we look at to call this success or harm? And if we can't find one, that's okay. Sometimes we'll just go with a subjective one. I mean, yeah, maybe how do you feel? Say, yeah. yeah, exactly. And we maybe say, hey, let's look at your aura ring data or your whoop or see what your HRV and your and your uh, your sleep patterns are, see if it affects that. That may be some data or just how you feel. Um, but it's important, I think, to prospectively kind of line up these tests uh, for individuals, do these end of one studies. And that's generally how we approach something like that, where there's not a ton of evidence or it's mixed evidence. Uh, we can still try it, but we want to follow along and, and try to decide whether to continue it, uh, whether it's helpful or harmful for you. Yeah. And I mean, for me, for this one, you know, I'm sitting like, I'm definitely taking a couple of days away from it just to 
mm-hmm. <laughs> give myself a chance to recover. But you know, the question, what I will probably do is go back at it, but in microdose, just to see if I can, you know, because that those first three good days were, it's, it's an interesting paradigm, right? It's an interesting contrast. And could it be a situation of too much of a good thing for mm-hmm. me? So yeah. Um, you bring up another interesting point. So you use, do you, I, it sounds like you use a lot of self-quantification tools with your patients. And I think that's such an incredible trend that we're now seeing in medical practices that are, that have moved in the direction that you've moved into really is helping to empower the patient. Yeah. We love data. Um, I mean, that's what we start (laughs) out with. We start out with incredible. I remember, I remember when we first started, um, doing this, I remember seeing patients and I'd have hundreds of pages of DNA data, microbiome data, blood work, all this data, and it would take 10 hours to put it together. Now, luckily we have a software program that does it all in automated fashion for us. That's helpful. But then going forward, we love data and, and objective data as well when we can get it. So when, when someone says they're not sleeping well, for example, I say, okay, like, let's talk about it. Tell me why, what's going on. But then also before we do some interventions, let's measure it. So like mm-hmm. most of our patients will wear an aura ring. Um, and so then when I may look at their DNA and say, Hey, look, you have a FAAH fatty acid amide SNP. So CBD may benefit you. And so we can, we can try that, but we'll try it for a week with <laughs> your ring on and then a week without just to compare or every, I mean, people do great with magnesium, do great with so many different interventions. But if we, as we try those, we want to be able to measure them as well. And the wearables are great for that, being able to, to quantify and not just get uh, the subjective, how did you sleep last night? Yeah, for sure. And do you find, I find that it really gets, well, at least some people, again, we have different types of people, but for some people, it's such a motivator because it almost gamifies mm-hmm. and really draws them in kind of, it, it brings them on board as a participant in this whole process, as opposed to being a passive, tell me what to do, doc, you know, you fix me, which I yeah, think yeah. is probably something that you're, you've moved away from as you left conventional medicine behind and moved into what you're doing now. Yeah. Well, we know what gets measured gets managed. Uh, and we yeah. also know the Hawthorne effect is a real thing. If you start, if you're tracking your food or you're wearing a CGM, I have a CGM on right now. Most of our parents, pa- patients wear CGMs or you're wearing an aura ring. You're just going to be better about your bedtime routine or what you eat. So there is that positive effect from it. Um, and then you're right. It, it gamifies it, it for them. Uh, and, they, and they also have some accountability. They know someone's going to be looking at it too. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think there is a potential occasional dark side to it also. Like some, some people get somewhat obsessive. And so it's important to note that uh, when it happens, but most people, I think it's a, it's a net positive. Yeah. I find with the negativity of it for most people, again, there's always the exception, but for most people, it's helping them to understand that this is just a source of information. This is not a judgment. This is not a competition. I mean, it can be a little bit of a competition, but you know, it's not a race. We're just collecting data. (laughs) It's going to be okay. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a small piece of the entire pie too. You don't want someone to put so much weight on one individual marker that they're tracking either. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. I mean, if you're willing to, can we talk a little bit about your, the algorithm and the software program that you've developed? Because I think that's so interesting, right? Probably like, like how long did it take for you to realize, holy jumping, like we've got all this data, we can't go on like this. We're drowning in data. <laughs> and yeah, 
pretty quick. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, to me, I mean, I just mentioned it would take us 10 hours of prep time. And, and the problem with that, again, like we're nerds, like we kind of enjoy that a little bit, but at the same time, you can only help a certain number of people. So we, we had an immediate problem when we started and that we had more people that wanted this than, than we can help. And it make, when you tell people that people get it intuitively, when you say like, look, your diet, your exercise, everything should be based on you as an individual. So people want that type of care, but the amount of time it would take to, to crunch the data was, uh, it just made it too expensive. And mm-hmm. I grew up uh, without much and where I'm from, people couldn't really do this and that bothered us. So we knew the solution was a, was a technological one. Um, let a doctor be a doctor and have, have a, a program crunch the data. So we, we hired pretty quickly. We hired the lady who started the data informatics program for Umana. We hired several other data scientists and software engineers and it took about two years, but we were able to kind of take everything that we were doing in our brain, all that, all these algorithms, these if ends, a lot of artificial intelligence is added to come up with a software program. Um, we call that clarity is the program. And so that's what we use to be able to see a lot more patients to get the price way down. It's, it's much less expensive now. Now it can be done for less than a hundred dollars a month. And we're getting ready wow. in the near future to probably even um, do it with insurance so that anyone can afford it. Um, but it, we also created that program because uh, no matter how many patients we can see individually, which we can see more with that, we still weren't going to make the impact and be able to get personalized medicine out to the masses, to everyone without something that could go to other practitioners. So now we actually have other physicians, other health coaches, other providers actually using that software and providing this precision medicine as well. That's amazing. So, so you make your, your, your software available, not just to medical doctors, like also to other types of practitioners. So great question. So right now, the way we practice is with a combination of physicians and health coaches. Um, I think, um, honestly, the health coaches are a little more important, uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to impact, like the <laughs> physicians kind of make the plan, come up with the plan, they can prescribe and they can order tests. And then, they, then you come up with this plan and the health coach and the, and the patient are really partnering on, on implementing and the motivation and accountability as well. So we have this kind of mix, um, the software itself right now, and mainly it's, it's physicians licensing it. We're working on different versions so that, um, that anyone or other people could license it. The trick with that is, is around these kind of FDA, SAMD, mm-hmm. softwares and medical device regulations. Like f- to be able to let anyone use it, uh, we have to strip out some of the what would be considered providing medical. medical care. Yeah. yeah. So it's so it's a little tricky right now. It is licensed to physicians who work with health coaches, but in the future we'll have something that um, you don't have to be, to be a physician to to use as well. That's amazing. I love that. Um, and so. We were talking earlier also about, no, we already talked about that. I was going to bring back the carnivore diet. Well, I I could bring back the carnivore diet. You know, like I think that diet is such a, it's such a hot topic. Um, Do you have an opinion on these extreme diets, which frankly, people in both camps would would argue it's not extreme. This is the diet we were supposed to be eating. And, and they're, you know, they can be very compelling. Yeah. Right. And we certainly have people certainly on the carnivore side and even on the vegan side sometimes, but I think on the vegan side, it's more a question of someone coming off a sad diet and seeing you're going to feel better no matter what you eat. It's not coming off a standard American diet, but, um, can we talk a little bit just about these extremes, what you've seen and your thoughts on them? Sure. It's always, 
tough to talk about diet because it's almost like religion. It's like people have their own religion, the religious belief around like, this is the diet. Um, and, um, but we take a very different approach. It is a very personalized approach. I never tell a patient, Hey, do a carnivore diet or do a vegan diet or really name them because it doesn't help a whole lot. It's kind of a shortcut. Like people kind of know what you mean, but I find it much more helpful to talk about specific foods and ways of eating. So I will answer your question directly though, just about yeah. the extreme diets. Sometimes, sometimes we will kind of use them in a therapeutic sense. So someone has a lot of autoimmune issues, for example, or, or something like that, or, or a lot of inflammation, we can't figure out where it's coming from and resolve. Sometimes it is good just in order for someone to get off. You mentioned the SAD, the standard American diet. Sometimes they do need kind of an extreme diet as kind of a reset. Um, but most of these uh, really limiting diets, whether it's strict vegan or carnivore or whatever it is, they're hard to sustain. And I don't really necessarily think they should be sustained completely. Like mm-hmm. we are, we are omnivores and some people like myself with my genetics do a lot better with a lot more animal products in my diet. And then some people like Mike, he eats pretty much a vegan diet. He'll eat some fish and occasionally some meat, but with his genetics and my genetics, they're so different that we have very different diets. We're both omnivores. It's just the percentage of our diet that are from plants or animals are vastly different. And I don't think you can peg a certain percentage, 90, 10, either way, um, to someone without actually getting to know them and looking at their blood work and their genetics and other things like that. So um, I don't have strong opinions for or against any specific diet. It just depends on the person um, yeah. and what and, and and not even just the person, but the person in their specific situation, like mm-hmm. different times in your life, you may need to eat different types of diets as well. My, my wife um, is a, uh, is mainly vegetarian. She's pescatarian, but when we've had, we have four kids and with a couple of the kids, she would just find herself all of a sudden in the line at Chick-fil-A. Like she's like, <laughs> how do I get here? I don't do this. I don't eat meat. And then she just is craving meat or other things. Like when she's pregnant, she needs some sort of nutrient. So even individuals at different times in their life may need different diets as well. And so that's why I don't find it super helpful to say this diet's good. This one's, this one's bad. I think that's such a great point that acknowledging that, you know, you, you have these different layers, right? Different people need different things as a baseline, but then even within that different people are going to need different things at different Mm -hmm. times of their life, depending on their situation. Yeah, You know, yeah. and it could be life stage. It could be, are you being an athlete or are you being sedentary? Yeah. Are you for a woman? Like, where are you in your stage of life? Um, are you making babies? Are you postmenopausal? Like all of these things are going to come into play. And, you know, I think I find one of the hardest thing to get people's heads around sometimes is what, what worked for you before may not work for you right now. And mm-hmm. it's okay. And, and it's, it's probably one of the biggest arguments for helping people to overcome this diet as religion mm-hmm. kind yeah. of position, right? So that they themselves can become more fluid and accepting of yeah. what their body needs instead of this, I don't know, emotional, political, whatever you want to call it, position that kind of gets in the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I, played a couple sports in college and did Ironmans. And now I'm an old man just trying to keep up with four kids. So like my, my diet is vastly different, like what I ate then versus now. And it has to be, I have a completely different lifestyle. So everyone's different and every stage of their life is different too. And yeah. what they should eat to fuel their body. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Well, you know, you may go back to being marathon men. You never know. 
<laughs> yeah, I've got I've got a eleven, nine, five, and three year old. So it's it's hard to oh, it'll be a while. The endurance stuff taking time from them. Although I have to say, one of my favorite pictures of my son is when he was five doing a triathlon. He did one of those little kid triathlons. It was yeah. so cute. <laughs> my husband had to get in the pool with him to get him across the pool. Um, you can get them into this stuff pretty early and it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. I should totally do that. <laughs> I think half the fun is just being there with them and watching them go through it. Um, okay. So why don't, I mean, we talked a little bit and I'm guessing that your approach is so personalized that, you know, is there a client, a patient that, is there a patient profile you work with or you guys are probably pretty much bring it and let's solve it kind of thing. Right. Yeah, we, we only work with humans. Yeah. No, that's it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and also no veterinary people. patients. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we have, um, we have some patients who are, uh, we have a lot of pro athletes. We have several patients who are Olympi Olympians who won medals. And then we also have 80 something year olds with Alzheimer's and dementia and cancer and patients with difficult problems too. So we see the entire gamut um, that's important to us. And we think that while everyone is individualized and their care is personalized and different, we actually start the same way with everyone, which is just simply a really holistic approach. The DNA, the blood work, sometimes a microbiome, long questionnaires, a long history, um, take that really holistic view. And that's, that's the right approach in our mind to every patient. And then you go down the different routes of your know, performance goes, you just want to feel better. What's mm -hmm. going on with you? Yeah. Goals. I mean, understanding where someone wants to get is definitely a huge piece of the puzzle. Um, I was actually in a conversation with a couple of other practitioners not that long ago. And um, we were talking about women's body composition, which gets to be a very crazy topic and especially postmenopausal women. And you've got, you know, a couple of these women out there who are, they're gifted, right? They, they look as good in their fifties as they did in their thirties, but they are this much of the population, but putting it out there, Hey, all you got to do is do what I do. And you too. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, I'm calling BS on that. Like I just, not to mention the fact that I think the question comes down at the end is what's it worth to you? Like how far are you willing to go to achieve this essentially aesthetic goal um, at a stage in your life where it's going to be a bit of an uphill climb. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I remember a trainer saying that to me, I'm like, you know, well, I'm not happy at this body fat percentage. I want to be there. He goes, all right, Nat. So how much are you willing to invest in this in terms of time, energy, focus, your diet, your workouts, your this and your that, like, how important is it? Would you rather just be healthy or would you, or are you going to become obsessive about it? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but what's, what's the outcome you're really looking for. And then I think in a way it can help people to restore some balance in terms of their approach so that they become a little less obsessed with some weird ideal that, you know, whether it's the media or social pressures or whatever have told them, this is what they need to be looking for. Yeah. I think maybe the one topic I'm more nervous to talk about than, than religion and food is women's body composition, but, <laughs> but no, I, I, but I hear you. And it's important. I mean, I mentioned earlier, um, the goals and with every patient, we start with, okay, what are your top three goals? And then we're going to partner with them and try to try to get there. But sometimes you'll get a goal of, of weight loss, for example, like you were talking about and great. Like a lot of times that's important, 
to be healthy, but it's also important to ask the question frequently. Okay, great. That's your goal. Now, now why is that your goal? And then they answer and then another, like, why is that your goal? And then they answer in one more, why is that, why, why is that important? They say, well, I want to be happy. And like, okay, why don't we just go straight to the happy part? Like, why don't we talk about some mindfulness and, and let's, mm-hmm. let's dig in, dig into that. Um, because, and that's a big part of our practice too. Like we, we want to honor people's goals and what they want to achieve, but sometimes some redirection and kind of focus on mindfulness and well-being and um, what makes you truly happy. Sometimes that's our, our job as well as a little bit of redirection. Yeah. That's, that's such a, I love that you just said that, you know, helping people to dig through, dig past the, the surface and get to the bottom of what it is that they're really after. And then helping them to see, you know, is, fitting into a size two, is that really the thing that you're after? Is that really going to make you happy in, in the way that you're looking for happiness? So, which, which is a great, you know, which is a great segue actually to something else I was going to ask you, which is we've talked about diet. We've talked about um, microbiome. We've talked about genetics and exercise, but what are the other pieces that you work with people on? And it sounds like you're not leaving behind because you know, this whole idea of how big a factor is stress that you're seeing. And certainly over the last year and a half or whatever it is now, like, have you actually seen stress show up? Like your patients show up differently because of what's happening in the world? For sure. And one of the things I say frequently is that there is no health without the mental health part. And so we really do, that it is a passion of ours. We really do focus on it. You, you kind of, a lot of times you have to like what I was talking about redirecting earlier, you kind of have to earn the right with someone to do that. You got to um, <clears throat> earn their trust a little bit. But as soon as we can get to that point with someone, we do focus on that. So we, in general, when we see someone, we do focus on, we start with the big fundamental things that that they come to us for. Like, let's talk about the perfect diet for you, perfect exercise program. Let's optimize your sleep. Let's mm-hmm. reduce your cardiovascular risk and your dementia risk and your inflammation. But we also have built in we mindfulness and stress mitigation from the beginning. Um, and usually we focus on those a little later, uh, unless someone is interested in immediately um, because usually there's some low hanging fruit. We can fix your vitamin D level and omega three level and inflammation and all that. But um, once someone is actually trusting enough to really talk about and focus on the mindfulness, that's very exciting for us because we see such tremendous gains, like even just your biomarkers and other things mm-hmm. improving. It makes a big difference. So we, we actually have developed a specific six month track uh, for our patients who are interested in on mindfulness. So we took kind of the mindfulness-based stress reduction course that John Kabat-Zinn uh, developed. And we have our we have our own kind of version of that somewhat over six months uh, with videos and teaching and workbooks and helping people work through and figure out the right types of mindfulness and meditation practice for them. Because it's, we just, I mean, while all the other stuff is really cool that, that we do and the scientific and the DNA stuff, like I don't think there's any bigger impact we have than we can really get someone to be more mindful. Yeah. Well, you know, when you consider that meditation is one of the few ways we have at our disposal to actually help to lengthen telomeres, Mm -hmm. Um, whatever you think about telomeres, whether you think they're the cat's meow or not in aging uh, and disease, they're a thing, you know, Mm -hmm. having super short telomeres is not a good thing. (laughs) Any way you slice it. Um, And when you, you know, when you imagine that this act of nothing, right, this act of actually affecting your stress from the inside out can have such a past powerful impact on your, on your longevity and your health really is, um, is pretty, it's a pretty big thing when you can help people to see that 
and, uh, and embrace it. Yeah. And reducing stress is, is, is important in and of itself, but there are just so much, so much science and so much data on the other the benefits of that for longevity and for, for just everything else that has, has such downstream effects that it's um, a really important part of taking care of any person. Yeah. I think it would be so interesting to look at all these long lived people. And I don't know if anybody's done it. Maybe somebody has and see how many of them are type a wired, you know, to the nines kind of spinning around people. I think those guys, you know, if they haven't figured out a, a ballast, to that wiredness. Um, somehow I have a feeling we're not going to find too many of them in the centenarian crowd. <laughs> well, we do, we do a lot of epigenetic testing, uh, epigenetic age testing with our patients. Um, and it just anecdotally, I'll tell you the hard charging entrepreneur founder, like those, those folks, they invariably usually do not get great scores. Like they're usually older biologically than they are chronologically. So we're definitely seeing that anecdotally in our practice. Amazing. And so it's funny, I was just thinking, I wonder if I should ask him that question. And I'm not surprised that you brought it up. So have you had good success in helping those people kind of, and sometimes it's not so much about turning back the clock as it is slowing that rate of aging. I mean, there's, there's different language that used that's used around that kind of testing. And I think it's so interesting that it's become accessible and affordable and it's such a fascinating uh, metric for people to look at. Um, have you been working with it long enough where you've seen people actually slow the clock down or maybe even regain some of those years? Yeah, I'll tell you, yeah, I'll tell you <laughs> anecdotally, we have. I, I hesitate to say that, though, because I generally like to have really solid and big data to back up something like that. So we've ran a lot of data on other markers in our patients, which have been really good results. We don't really have a big enough in or number or time to really say definitively, Hey, on average, we reduce biologic age by this much. And honestly, the tools themselves, they're getting better, but they're still somewhat crude. So I wouldn't even know how big of a sample you would need before I'd actually trust the result. But anecdotally, it does seem that a lot of the interventions, when you're just focusing on the basics of sleep and diet and exercise, uh, they can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And so also, so let's, so there's two other big topics I want to kind of touch on with you, because I've heard you speak to peptides before. So I believe that, do you use those in your practice yet? Or you do, right? We do. Yeah. Okay. We, yes, yeah, guys. We, I didn't ask the question ahead of time. So <laughs> fishing here. <laughs> we do. We use, we use peptides. We use quite a few different uh, peptides, but on a very individualized basis with patients. Okay. And do you tend to use them more for I guess, are you more in the, in the kind of healing modalities or because there's these two different categories of peptides, right? You've got the bioregulators that was particularly like epitalon, which is more of a seen as more of a longevity kind of type peptide. And then you've got the other ones that might, you know, might be more interventional, if you will, in terms of specific situations. Yeah, we, we do like BBC 157 obviously is a very common one. So we have a lot of injuries with our athletes and sure. um, we'll frequently use that. Yes, Epitalon we use in some longevity protocols that we have as well. Um, we'll use sometimes thymosin alpha, thymosin beta, um, ipamorelin and CJC occasionally in certain circumstances. Um, so there's quite a few that, that we use, but they're usually on pretty individualized um, areas. If someone has a specific goal that they come up with and we think it's going to be helpful and the benefit much outweigh the risk, then we'll use it. It's, it's a little difficult to um, 
uh, assess risk because they, they seem like they're very low risk. We just don't have an incredible amount of data yet. So we're, we don't use them cavalierly. We, we, yeah. we do try to have good conversations with patients and be honest about how much we know and don't know about specific peptides, mm-hmm. but we do use them. Nice. Um, all right. So let's flip to the other side and move into nature because you've got a living wall behind you. <laughs> You're, you chose wild health as the name for your company, your organization. And so let's talk about that a little bit, because I think that nature plays such a big role in, and it, again, it taps into the whole stress management thing and the whole nine yards and really speaks to the whole person. So do we want to talk about the wild piece of wild health a bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the wild, we, we call it that it, it really means two things. One is kind of the wild cutting edge genomic stuff and science stuff we do, but then it also is an allusion to the wilderness and to nature. Um, and we think that a lot of our problems in society today have to do with our disconnection from nature and from creation. And so we, we also tried to, to bring that element in and, and really try to encourage people to, um, uh, I guess, biohack in more natural ways uh, frequently too, um, when they can. I mean, the more that we can be outside, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of evidence and studies on this. So the, um, the Japanese have done a great job of, of studying this and their forest bathing or Shinyan Roku uh, that they practice. Um, they've shown really good things, decreased rates of cancer when people live really close to trees and are in nature a lot, uh, hmm. decreased inflammation, better immune response. There's a lot of really cool data um, out of Japanese studies on that. Um, We haven't studied that as much in the U.S., but I think people just in general get it and understand, like they feel better when they're in nature. And so how do you help your clients? Because you you deal with people by, you practice telehealth, am I correct? Like you don't just work with people close to you because you live in a place where you are close to nature. But you're going to have patients, obviously, who are living in big cities. Mm-hmm. How do you help people to, you know, are there biohacks that you like, you know, do you hack it? Mm-hmm. Or is it just a question of getting people to get out in nature, which sometimes is, e- hard, is easier said than done? Yeah, I, I think it's mainly education. I mean, when you tell people, for example, hey, there's your blood pressure is high and there's really good studies on being at it, being in nature and reducing blood pressure. There's a, there's a great study of uh, cholecystectomies, people getting their gallbladder out and the patients who, who had a view of trees in their window in the hospital recovered faster than the ones that didn't. You're um, kidding. We, we know that with, <laughs> with sleep optimization, a really big part of that is getting outside and sunlight in the morning. So mm-hmm. I think just, just educating people and helping them build that into their day and almost treating it like a prescription. Like if, yeah. like if you have, high blood pressure, like we could give you a medication or we could just, Hey, be in nature, do some forest bathing a couple times a week or once a day or however, however often you're able to. So the education and kind of treating it like a prescription is one of the ways we encourage people to, to do that. That's such a nice approach actually. And, and even the, uh, and so do you subscribe also to the whole idea of being barefoot on the ground, like the whole earthing and grounding aspect of being, cause there's the light obviously. And you, you know, you brought up morning light, which is so important. I even also like people to get out close to the end of the day around sunset and get some of those, some of those rays that inform the brain almost, you know, it's almost like I describe it almost as orienting the brain as to where we are in time and Mm -hmm. time to start those processes. I mean, hopefully our body knows, but as we all sit inside in front of artificial light, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, all day long with very little natural inputs, 
um, it's almost like shutting our bodies off from the natural triggers that would normally help to guide those processes as we move through the day. Yeah. Our life is about rhythms with the seasons and with the days. And when we disconnect ourselves from that, it's no wonder that we lose something. I mean, people don't sleep great. It's not, not just the light, like in the morning and the evening and that signal, but it's also the temperature. Historically, it's been warm and hot and then it gets cool at night, but we're, we're inside in the same temperature the entire time. Uh, And then we're at nighttime, we have all these bright blue lights shining on us. Um, it's just, I don't know why we're surprised that we have so many health issues and sleep issues. No kidding. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's so amazing. Okay. So let's talk for our last and final topic. Um, although we may come up with a few others along the way. Um, so you mentioned earlier about bringing other practitioners into the fold so that you can impact more people so that you can kind of spread the love of this type of, 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 patient care model that you've come up with, which is so, I love it because it's so complete. It's so all encompassing of so many different things. Let's talk about the summit. Let's say you've, you've hosted a few summits and also, I mean, your authenticity is amazing, right? And you have a summit coming up and so many health practitioners, medical conferences, all of these things may speak to the power of nature, the power of light, whatever the case may be, and are held in these massive convention centers with artificial light, where when you spend enough time in there, you, you know, within a few hours, you've got this massive headache. You need to wear blue blockers because the light is so offensive to your eyes, like the whole nine yards. And you bring a whole different sensibility to this. (laughs) Let's let's first of all talking a little bit about you know this this kind of group of of physicians now and practitioners that you have around you that you're bringing along on this journey and how you're creating these summit experiences for them to bring it all home. Yeah, so sure. So we, I mean, we our practice is uh, virtual telehealth. Um, our fellowship where we train providers is all online, and. Um, I think we lose something in not having physical connection and and getting people together. And we've especially lost that uh, over the last year and a half or however long it's been now. It seems like it's been forever uh, that this pandemic is going on. And so, um, yes, we've been, we've been occasionally having these summits where we really bring people together and do it in nature. Um, We, we had one in the spring and it was really an excuse for me to bring my heroes in town and learn from them. We had people, like Sam Thayer, um, I think is the potentially the world's greatest forager and Daniel Vitalis and, and a lot of people like that. And so we're, we're doing it again this fall and it's going to be completely in nature. It's pretty primitive uh, setting. So I would warn people about that. This is not, you're not coming to a hotel. You're actually going to be connected to nature and we're going to be teaching skills that we don't have. Like we'll talk about the genomics and the medicine. Like those are fun topics, but we're also going to talk about, um, foraging, like I mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, or natural building or uh, fire starting or a lot of these skills that uh, we just don't have anymore. And they're useful, but they're also just a way to interact and connect with nature as well with a group of like-minded folks. So selfishly, it's things that I want to do. (laughs) And I'm like, all right, if we just put it on, then we'll attract other people who want to do that as well. And we'll have have a great time building some community. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, I mean, so having been invited to participate in this particular wild health summit, um, I remember I, I, you know, I heard about it. I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. This is so exciting. What can I contribute? And 
I've come up with with a, a couple of topics that I think will be really interesting and connect to, into what you do. But uh, but then when I kind of looked back at it and I said, well, wait a minute, I'm going to be in a tent. So and I'm going to be hanging out like in the woods or by a river with a bunch of people. And then you're sitting there going, oh, my God, this is so cool. Like, I don't have to worry about having my hair done or my makeup and I can wear my Blundstone boots. And it's an it's an interesting thing when you and it's I think I mean, I can imagine that it's going to be a completely different connection Mm. to the people who are going between the people who are going to be there in the sense of you're connecting with people in a in a very I almost can't describe it, but it's it's kind of like without a lot of the accoutrements of modern life, right? You're not, the aesthetics are not that big a deal. The It's just like, here I am, here's what we're doing and let's experience, let's get into the dirt. Like, let's get into it together yeah. and see what comes out kind of thing. It's a very, um, and it's definitely a walking the walk, talking the talk kind of world, right? It's. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great experience in, in a beautiful place with beautiful people. And when I say beautiful people, I'm talking about beautiful souls. Like these, yeah. um, they're just good. They're just good people. We had such a great time in the spring and we're going to have a great time this fall too. I'm really excited about you being there. I mean, we are going to have some great science topics like peptides and and things like that, but it's, it's going to be a really fun mix and a really interesting juxtaposition. It's great. It's great to, and really fun for me too, to get kind of the scientist physicians um, alongside uh, the kind of wilderness skills folks. And it's always, it's always fun to mix those two up. <laughs> it's a fire starting. I'll be able yeah. to rival my son. He, he was a tripper. He was kind of, he used to go out on these trips at camp. And so he can start a fire and I am sitting there with my arms crossed going, I don't know. So I'll be able to get down there and blow on the little bits of wisps of birch bark and get them to light up or hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do fun stuff like uh, mushroom inoculation, how to grow your own mushrooms and logs and fermentation skills, all kinds of really interesting things that, uh, that are, and we'll do breathwork sessions. It's, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a fun couple yeah. of days. Oh, it sounds diverse. great. So who can go to the wild health summit? Just. Yeah, it's open open to anyone and everyone. So last time we had um, a lot of medical providers, but then we also just had people who were interested in this as well. So it's not, it's uh, it's really for everyone. It's at uh, wildhealthsummit.com and yeah, anybody can sign up. Amazing. Um, and um, there's actually, there's a promo code, believe it or not, just my name, Natalie with an H um, that people can maybe save a little bit of money on their, on their ticket to come on down and, and take part. And um I think it's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be quite a, a unique experience and opportunity to learn from some really interesting people and kind of get out of our own heads and get out of our ways and just kind of get into it in a different way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very different than your normal day-to-day life and it's a, it's a really nice break and I'm looking forward to it already. Yeah, no, me too. Um, okay. So to close off, I like to ask my guests, especially, well, I like to ask all my guests, if I can think of it is if you had to give someone advice about what are the three things they could start doing tomorrow to make an impact on their health, to make a, just to be healthier, to feel healthier, maybe to, you know, help that immune system to work better for them. And in the climate that we're in, what would, what would be the three things, the three most important things you would kind of help people to turn their attention to? Yeah. I mean, um, 
I think, I think the obvious things we usually think of with health are, um, uh, food, exercise and sleep. But -hmm. what I would say about those specifically is, um, is eat, move and sleep more naturally if you can. And when you really start thinking about that, I think you, you can go a long way because like the standard American diet is not natural in any way. Um, our movements and, and, going to sitting all day is not natural in any way. Um, the way we sleep with lights on till late in the night and right before we go to bed and stimulated the entire time, um, and getting up with an alarm clock, none of that is natural. And we could unpack that for hours, like what's Mm -hmm. natural and what's not. But I think in general, people just started doing those things, eating, moving and sleeping more naturally, just thinking about, okay, what would I, how would I be doing this a thousand years ago? I think those are kind of good guiding principles in general to, to help go a long way in optimizing your health. Yeah, no, I love that. And, you know, with the, with the eating, you know, even getting into a world where you start to think about, am I hungry or is it time to eat? You know, Mm -hmm. there's, there's, first of all, the aspect, obviously of what you're eating and eating food that is closer to the state that it started out in. Um, but also even paying attention to your own internal rhythms and, you know, why am I eating right now is, is a big deal. And then with the sleep, I think that's such a great point. And if I'm recognizing that once we get into, um, a healthier sleep cycle, many people don't end up needing alarm clocks unless you have to get up at some ungodly hour, um, yeah, that if you don't have a sleep, if you don't have an order ring or sleep tracker, don't have objective data, that's one thing I tell people to like just don't wake up with an alarm. Like that's that's a first that's a first step. If you're waking up with an alarm, you're cutting you're cutting that time short. And so that's a really easy thing to think about with your sleep is you shouldn't be waking up with an alarm. You should be doing it naturally. Yeah. And maybe that's a silver lining to the last year and a half, you know, as less people have to commute into work and are able to work from home. Maybe it's cut people a little bit of slack in that world. And they've had the time and the space to kind of accommodate their natural sleep cycles a bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, anything else? Did I miss any major points? Is there anything else we need to talk about, Matt, or are we going to let no, people go? No, that's, that's <laughs> great. We, uh, I mean, I think if anybody has more questions or wants to learn more about us at wildhealth.com, everything's there about the fellowship program, the, the summit, there's probably a link there. If you want to be a patient, any of that at wildhealth.com is where we have everything. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for today. I love this conversation. I'm totally looking forward to meeting you in person in October. And um, that's it. Great. Thanks so much. Can't wait to see you there. Likewise. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, mattnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.